Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Benjamin T. Smith, professor at the University of Warwick in England. His new book is The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Professor Smith. Thank you very much, Trevor. I'd like to start with the background of how you wrote this book, because when you read it, you realize that you had to have spent some considerable amount of time in Mexico and talked to a lot of people uh, on the ground, so to speak, and higher ups too, but also just on the ground to kind of tell this this century long history of of the Mexican drug trade. Um, well, it's, it's it's a good question, and I'm not sure that we spend enough time kind of thinking how to put together these kind of uh, arguments, these kind of uh, insights. So, really, I'm a trained historian, so I spent a lot of my time doing this. I spent about a decade flitting from archive to archive. Some of them are hev- heavily uh, organized, very well organized. Uh, you can find uh, both classified and declassified documents uh, in these ar- in these archives. At the same time, I went to some pretty small archives out in the um, in the munici- municipalities in the townships of Mexico. Um, but I also combined this with a fair amount of interviews that I did both in Mexico and also in the United States. And I think this is perhaps where I, I got a kind of slightly different take. Is not I didn't simply interview. Mexican traffickers, but also Mexican drug growers, but also people on the other side. So uh, policemen in Mexico, but also uh, in the United States. So I uh, was fortunate enough to get into or to be introduced to a kind of network of DEA or former DEA agents who provided a lot of information and even some of the sources which I used uh, for the book. So I think it was this combination of fairly rigorous academic archival research combined with a fair amount of um, yeah journalistic style interviews. I have to ask it at any point in some of these interviews, did you feel endangered at all? Uh, well, I can tell you that DE agents are fairly hard drinking, especially <laughs> the retired ones. So I, I certainly felt, felt hung over. Um, no, I mean, in all seriousness, uh, there is obviously a, a great danger to people reporting on the drug war in Mexico. Um, I think we've got, I think the numbers now stand at somewhere in the region of 150 journalists have been killed over the last 20 years. Um, I think two things to to bear in mind about this. None of these have been foreign journalists. All of them have been Mexican and the vast majority have not worked for national newspapers. They've worked for small local um, newspapers uh, and they're often uh, killed, it would appear, not by drug traffickers, but as much by the authorities to hide corruption frankly uh so i will say however there were a couple of occasions where i felt fairly nervous on at least one occasion i was mistaken uh for a potentially some kind of security forces or dea agent uh which was fairly scary um but i have to say i'm not that willing to kind of go into details about that uh but i think compared to the the kind of everyday fear that journalists have in Mexico, I I was I, I ver- come from a very privileged position, frankly, and I also could return to the UK, which so many of my contacts could not. So setting the stage as, as your book does around the turn of the century, nineteen hundred. Uh, what does so what does Mexico look like at that time for those who don't understand sort of the political situation and, and what are the first sort what is the first type of drug trafficking that emerges uh, in Mexico at that around that time? Right. So Mexico in 1900 is effectively a uh, dictatorship uh, run by a guy called Porfirio Diaz, uh, who's been in power since the kind of Civil War era, kind of 1876 is where he officially takes over. And he runs Mexico until a revolution in 1910. Now, during this period, like a lot of Latin American countries, there's a fair amount of discrimination against the uh, indigenous groups uh, of Mexico. 
uh, people who speak indigenous languages, uh, people who uh, don't necessarily speak Spanish. And uh, one of the ways in which they discriminated against this group was to accuse them of not only smoking marijuana, but also by smoking marijuana, becoming extremely violent. Um, so it's not dissimilar to the way that certain narcotics became attached to certain racial groups in the United States, just to the north. Um, but certainly during the early 1900s, you get this connection between marijuana smoking, being indigenous and being a violent criminal. Uh, and these three things get kind of packaged together. There's very little actual scientific research about what marijuana actually does at the time. And simply these, these assumptions get packaged together um, and uh, end up putting, at that time, it has to be said, only hundreds in prison. I mean, this isn't the kind of fully paid up war on drugs of the 70s or 80s. So it's, it starts fairly small scale. People rarely get more than about six months in jail. Uh, but this is the kind of slow winding up of the drug war. How is that interacting with what's going on, on on the American side of the border in terms of marijuana? Right. So so in the 90, early 1900s, 1910s, even the 1920s, America, frankly, does not have a market in marijuana. A really, really small scale one, perhaps in New Orleans, perhaps growing by the 1920s in some jazz clubs in New York. But it's incredibly limited, incredibly small scale. And I think what's fascinating is we assume that the Americans in the 1930s with the Marijuana Tax Act were reacting, A, to maybe growing marijuana use, and B, were inventing uh, a fairly kind of racist discourse with persecuted Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. There were two things here. A, they were not responding to any real marijuana market. No one really was smoking weed. As I say, a few jazz trumpeters, a few people in some border cities mostly, however, over the side in Mexico because that was much more easy to buy it there. The second thing is this was not an invention of the of of the Americans. In actual fact, what they did is they imported these um, basically anti-indigenous ideas from Mexico and simply applied them to the United States. This was wholesale borrowing by the Americans. Uh, it was not even terribly original in their um, uh, in their war on drugs. In this case, they are in in many other bits of the war on drugs. Um, but uh, but yes, no. So it was it was an import from from kind of nineteen hundreds Mexican eugenicist dictatorship thoughts. But there's a, there's an interesting interaction um, with the the Mexican Civil War too, and the kind of social spread of marijuana in Mexico, including things like the co roaches, like the term roach or cockroach, and like the sal la cucaracha, which you mentioned in the book. Uh, it kind of has this inter interesting cultural impact around the time. I mean, there's always these legends that Pancho Villa's troops could march so long because they smoked so much marijuana. Um, so it, culturally, it kind of takes a foothold in Mexico, it seems like, around that time. It, it does, although I think that foothold can be over-exaggerated. There is no doubt uh, that during the Mexican Revolution, which goes really from kind of 1910 to 1920, although it then kind of continues and fits and starts throughout the 1920s, there are several conflicts in different regions of the country. Um, so effectively, marijuana becomes campfire solace for the amount of soldiers under arms. So yes, quite a lot of soldiers use marijuana, both to past the time of day is cheaper than booze. It's easier to get hold of than booze. Um, and at the same time, it does have some kind of palliative effects, particularly if you're dealing with kind of chronic injuries. Um, so as a result, it does get picked up by soldiers. It also kind of gains, I suppose, a kind of cultural status. And the, um, 
the kind of weed-addled kind of stoner who tells truth to power becomes basically part of Mexican popular culture, particularly in what we would call kind of music hall, hall theatre of the time. Uh, so I think in the 20s and 30s, you can see the first kind of stoner comedies, uh, and they're not done by Cheech and Chong, um, and they're not Pineapple Express. They're being done in, in, in musical theatre um, uh, outside Mexico City by former soldiers to crowds of former soldiers who find this kind of thing amusing. So, yes, it does gain a certain foothold among soldiers, among certain bohemians, but this is not general practice. In actual fact, in most of Mexico, it is still broadly despised and looked down upon as um, a drug of the lower classes. So when does opium get involved in the mix here? Right. So opium, Mexico has no market in opium. No one takes opium. It's far too expensive, frankly, even during the uh, revolution where a lot of people get the kind of injuries where some kind of opiates would be very helpful. They don't use opiates. That's extremely rare. It's far too overpriced. Most of them would use marijuana or booze if they're going to lop off a leg, frankly. Um, so most of them, as I say, go through enormous pain during this. So opium is effectively the reason America have a market for opium. Now, how big that is, there is an enormous amount of um, discussion about this. I mean, some people talk about two to four percent of the U.S. population at the end of the 19th century. I think that's massively over exaggerated. It's much nearer, less than one percent, but still a fair market for opium. Now, the most, the vast majority of that is coming uh, either from Asia or from Europe, where it's produced into morphine in factories. Uh, but starting uh, in 1914 when America puts through the Harrison Act, which effectively prohibits the selling of opiates or morphine or even heroin, which is a form of opium, uh, then some of those opiates start to come through Mexico. But Mexico at the time is not growing it. Nowadays, Mexico grows the vast majority of opium, which is made into heroin, which is killing American addicts. But in 1914, it wasn't. All it was was a transshipment point. It would bring... It would basically people would smuggle morphine and heroin into the Caribbean port or the, the, the Atlantic port of Veracruz. It would go up north by train and it would come out in Ciudad Juarez over the border from El Paso uh, and then really only served kind of southern United States at the time. Although quite a lot of soldiers who are on the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, so it, the, 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 the market in hard drugs or the smuggling of hard drugs is just beginning uh, in the 1910s. And that's the interesting sort of, that's the part of the story, which I think could be said to be the overall theme of your book is the interaction between different government officials and the drug trade. I mean, it's kind of the overarching story, but this seems about that time that opium gets, becomes popular or it's becoming more popular. Americans are cut off from, because of the Harris Narcotics Act and by 1924, heroin is completely prohibited here. Um, so what starts to happen? I mean, just, to, you know, you could choose one of your stories like, you know, Esteban Cantu or something like what starts to happen with these officials and how and how the drug trade kind, kind of intermixes with the government? Yeah, certainly. So effectively, there are um, Mexico at the time, just after the revolution or during the revolution, has these fairly autonomous governors who have a fair amount of independence in the way that they do policy. Yes, they are meant to follow federal laws, but they're given an enormous amount of leeway to do so. And many of them are seriously underfunded, right? Uh, they, they're effectively um, unable to tax vast swathes of their states. 
Um, but they do see a big source of revenue in the vice centres of the border. Now, here you can tax lots of things that are in a bit of a tax grey area. Uh, so booze, uh, smuggled booze to the United States, uh, prostitution, sex work, gambling, uh, but also narcotics. Now, officially, narcotics are prohibited in both the United States and Mexico. But what happens is many governors start, in effect, taxing it. Now, over the years, undoubtedly, many of these governors, many of these local officials have sequestered away large chunks of drug money and built vast, ostentatious mansions and house, you know, bought flats in New York and sent their kids to posh private schools in Switzerland. I have absolutely no doubt that went on. But I think what I found most fascinating is certainly for the first 50 years or so, a lot of governors and a lot of uh, local mayors were using at least some of this money to build up the state. Uh, so they were putting money quite, quite obviously. And you can see the kind of money trail into schools, into roads, uh, into policing, into security, into making sure that people could walk the streets at night and could go from city to city without being robbed by bandits. Um, so there was a drug money was being used in Mexico basically to, to build up the post-revolutionary state. Uh, and I think this was a real surprise to me. So Cantu really, Esteban Cantu was a revolutionary governor of Baja California, which is where Tijuana is. And he really starts this process. Um, but this is continued down to the kind of 40s and 50s in the place that they grow the opium. Um, so in Sinaloa, which becomes the kind of, I suppose, the 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 base for most of the opium growing in Mexico at the time, um, lots of the governors are effectively taxing these opium growers and some of the people who process it into heroin. And what's fascinating is you can see that the money goes to the local cops, but they don't just put the put the money into a new car or a, a second house for their lover. Uh, they put the money, they give the money directly to the tax collector who puts the money into the state treasury. So some of this money is actually being used and is being distributed uh, throughout society, which is kind of why it takes hold. When does the production function come in? I mean, it was interesting to me that I've written about the, the Chinese aspect in the American, of course, both just the general racism and all the Chinese immigration stuff, but also their connection to the opium use in especially the West Coast. I did not know there was any Chinese in Mexico uh, who were part of this, too. Yeah, it's not dissimilar to what is going on in um, in America, but on a slightly smaller scale. So I think it, it gets up to about 30,000 Chinese um, uh, immigrants who work predominantly like in the United States on building railways, but then some of them settle. Um, some of them go back to the US, but a lot of them do stay and kind of work either on um, small scale agriculture or basically buy up small shops. Um, and some of them, particularly recent immigrants, uh, are users of smoking opium. Uh, and they are really, I believe, the first people to actually start to try and grow opium, which, as I say, has no real market in Mexico, except this very, very small Chinese population. Um, so they start growing this, these opium poppies, partly for their own population, which is concentrated in the northwest of Mexico. So not just, you know, basically on the border with California, particularly in a place called Mexicali, which is the capital of Baja California, right next to Tijuana. And they start producing pretty poor quality smoking opium for these local Chinese groups. They do try to flog it over the border uh, to um, 
the Chinese in America, but frankly, it's such poor quality uh, that they don't really manage to sell much. Uh, and in actual fact, the San Francisco Chinese population or the Los Angeles Chinese population is much keener on importing the stuff from the Far East. Um, and they don't really, they look, frankly, they look down on, on the standard of America, of Mexican smoking opium. Uh, so it doesn't, but it, it, they do bring the tech to allow Mexico to start um, growing opium poppies um, uh, on Mexican soil. So that is a real change. And that happens kind of late 20s, early 30s. This all seems interesting because it's like, it all seems fairly organized and not terribly violent up to maybe this point in the story. I mean, you have some figures who who factor in, but it's much more of a, as you said, you have maybe pretty stand-up people like Kantu using drug money to make his city better. Um, I mean, but then I mean, at some point violence comes into play. Uh, and it, what is the main, what is the main source of the violence? I mean, aside from just violent murderers, but like what, what is the conflict that's happening that's causing sort of violence to start growing around the thirties, late twenties and thirties. Right. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really important point to kind of stress is that initially there is not an enormous amount of violence associated with the trade. This is partly to do with the scale of the trade, but more importantly, it's because the vast majority of people who grow the stuff or buy the stuff or transport the stuff are related. They're, they're mostly kind of small familial networks and groups, or they come from the same village. And they're related by godparentage, by marriage, uh, or by blood. Um, so there's very, very little kind of conflict between them. At the same time, where there is violence is effectively when certain local governments want to take over the protection of the drug trade. So I said in the in the past that certain local governments, like this guy Cantu, uh, were very happy to tax the drug trade. When a new governor came along, what he would do was he would take out Cantu's traffickers, possibly by arresting them, possibly by murdering them, uh, and then he would put his own in place, who were sufficiently loyal that they would pay him a percentage of their profits. So the very, very few... Uh, outbursts of violence in the 20s, 30s, 40s are entirely connected with the state control of the drug trade. They're not beefs over people stealing drugs. They're entirely to do with who controls the tax revenue effectively from the drug trade. During the Depression, things got pretty dry, it seems like, in the in the story, that, which is part of the, inter- the, the changing of the market. But it, was this because of just the lack of work in the uh, just the general depression conditions or do people people start taking fewer drugs yeah pretty much i mean i think this is something that that um that i try to do in the book is basically make the i mean there are kind of exciting and interesting characters and and cross-dressing drug traffickers and female drug traffickers that live for 50 years still trafficking drugs in Ciudad Juarez but also one of the major characters in the book i think is the american drug market um and just like the american drug market says it's enormous role during the counterculture, it also when the American drug market goes dry, and it really does in the 1930s, really noticeably so, particularly, I think, in the Southwest, basically Mexico doesn't bother to produce any drugs. And it doesn't produce really any narcotics to speak of between about 1930 and 1938, when suddenly America is cut off from its Chinese and European sources of opiates. And suddenly Mexico realized, here is a market. Um, so you can really see that it's the American demand that repeatedly kind of shapes what's going on in 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 Mexico. And, you know, there is no um, you can't see it any more clearly than the 1930s. No American demand. There ain't no Mexican drug trade. 
I'm glad that you spend a lot of time on one of my personal favorite uh, people in this sort of in the harm reduction history is someone named uh, Leopoldo Salazar de Viniega. So who is who is he and uh, Viniega and who and why is he so he's 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 a character to say the least, but a little bit ahead of his time. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's a he's a he's a really fascinating character. He's a doctor by training, um, and he's trained in France. Comes back to Mexico in the kind of early years of the revolution. Now, during the early years of the revolution, in actual fact, there's very little revolutionary or even terribly progressive thinking about drugs. The standard answer is, if you're rich, bribe the judge. If you're poor, we'll jam you in dra- jail. Um, not terribly progressive. And a lot of the medical thinking of it, of it was basically borrowing off Baudelaire's poetry on being on hash to uh, 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 to kind of make kind of grand medical pronouncements on how dangerous marijuana is. So Salazar Vinegra comes along and he starts working in basically the, the um, Mexico City's major lunatic asylum, which is also where they where they stick some of the drug addicts. Uh, and he starts doing some really serious medical research and really quantitative and qualitative studies of both um, morphine addicts, heroin addicts, and also marijuana addicts. And he can comes to the conclusion that in the case of marijuana, uh, basically it does very little. It has very, very little psychoactive uh, effects. And in actual fact, what is causing people to behave strangely or badly on marijuana is the fact that the press and the doctors say, if you smoke marijuana, you're going to behave really badly. So it's really the power of suggestion that was making people behave badly. Now, he tries to sell this to the Mexicans. And I think what is interesting is we might assume the Mexicans would be would 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 lap this up. But in actual fact, so ingrained is the fear of marijuana by the 30s that they completely reject it. So his plan for legalizing marijuana or at least decriminalizing marijuana fails. But his second plan is even more radical. Now, his second plan is that, okay, he admits that morphine and heroin and opiates are dangerous. But his idea is that all that all that making them illegal does is give money to the drug traffickers. So the best thing a state could do is effectively sell opiates, morphine and heroin at very, very low prices to addicts. Because all this would do is undercut the drug traffickers. Um, so he puts in place this plan to basically open state morphine clinics that are selling narcotics to addicts, incredibly low prices. And in the four months they're allowed to stay open, uh, they basically put all the drug traffickers and drug dealers in Mex- Mexico City completely out of business. In actual fact, these people are forced to basically give away their narcotics to keep any any custom up. So it's a remarkable success but one, sadly, that is extremely short-lived, which I imagine is where your second question might, might go. Oh, yes. There's a confrontation at the UN, yes. Uh, I, this is a story that I had, I had only heard intimated about Harry Anslinger and what he did, but it, you got into that even more. So, so yeah, th- there's a confrontation that results from this. Yeah, certainly. So Harry Anslinger at the time is the is the is basically the hoover of narcotics. He, he runs the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, um, and he's trying to kind of push for this Federal Bureau which frankly has had nothing to do during the 1930s. There's so little narcotic addiction, even in the United States. So he's trying to make himself relevant. So he starts to say, this is going to be a crisis. This is going to create a crisis on our border. Sound kind of familiar? Uh, this is going to flood America with uh, with evil narcotics. They're all going to be flogging it to our addicts who will go down to Mexico. 
uh, and he puts this forward at the League of Nations, at the kind of proto-UN. Um, but the, Ameri the Mexicans still don't back down. So what he effectively does is he realises most of the morphine that Mexico is giving away at these state-run clinics is actually coming through the United States. Now, it's a, in a rather strange position, he is allowed to effectively cut off Mexico from this supply of morphine, which he does. He says, if you're going to give it, you know, market price to addicts, we're not going to give you the morphine. Um, so he effectively does this and the Mexicans have to back down uh, and they do fairly sharpish. Um, so he's not, he's not even just cutting it off from the, the dispensing. No, to, no. I mean, compulsive users, but even even pain patients. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I have to say there aren't an enormous quantity of pain, pa uh, of pain patients who are taking the opiates time. But yes, they also can't get hold of morphine. Uh, so you get these uh, incredibly desperate doctors who are dealing with people dying in extreme pain who just cannot get hold of the stuff. It's torturing, essentially, Mexicans, or some of them. Uh, I mean, I mean, addicts being deprived, too, is a problem, too. Uh, and Harry Ansler comes back again as just a foreign policy force uh, after the war, too, because he's still trying to export America's – it's amazing how much foreign policy power he had. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he, he was extremely smart at um, making the Federal Bureau of Narcotics look relevant even when it wasn't. Uh, so in 1940, it simply wasn't re simply wasn't relevant when the Amer Mexicans were decriminalizing um, uh, opiates. The Second World War was happening. That was much more important. Uh, in actual fact, his only real rev relevance, as far as I can make out, was making sure that the United States had enough morphine for the troops who were going to go and go and fight in Europe or in Asia. Um, that wasn't a bad job, right? Maybe he should have stuck to that. Uh, but you're right. In the post-war period when America is effectively trying to flex its muscles in the Cold War, Anslinger again realised he's going to be sidelined. People are not concerned about drugs. They're concerned about the threat of international communism. So what he effectively does is try to push the Federal Bureau of Narcotics into relevance yet again. Uh, and yet again, his test case is Mexico. And that and that's right around that time, around 1950, is when is when as it is still today, the Golden Triangle emerges as a as a production hard, correct? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, to be to be fair to Anslinger, during the late 1940s, Mexico has upped its production in opium poppies. It's growing its own opium poppies and it's processing the stuff into heroin and morphine. Um, and it's during this period that Anslinger again forces Mexico, um, basically through public humiliation, ritual humiliation at the League of Na Nations and in the international press, to put in place extremely harsh drug laws, actually harsher drug laws than the United States, which really surprised me. I mean, it was, it was only a few years later the Boggs Act came in, and that was harsher than the Mexican laws. But before that, Mexico had the harshest laws in the Americas. And at the same time, he also initiates something which is going to be expanded hugely in the next few decades, which is militarized counter-narcotics campaigns, which effectively means sending soldiers into the opium fields and getting them to either pull up or burn down the opium poppies. Uh, so he really kind of initializes um, uh, that, that campaign. Is it safe to say that the the sort of emergence of the Golden Triangle, Sinaloa, uh, Michoacan around there is that is that 
kind of this beginning of the modern cartel system that we're seeing today, or at least the, the sort of seeds of it in terms of how much we get the production, the corruption of officials and violence continues to go up in this era too. We're talking about, they say like 1950 to 1970, establishing these families, establishing these groups, some of which we're still with today. Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think one thing that shocked me was reading a document, I think it was written in about 1941, and it was from a concerned local official who said, do you know everyone's growing opium around here? And he gave a list of everyone growing opium. Uh, and it was exactly the same names uh, that you see peppering DEA reports over the last 20 years. It's the Beltrans, it's the Levas, it's the Quinteros, it's the Fonsecas. So it's these same kind of families that were still involved. So they're now three, four, five generations through doing this. So this is certainly when drug trafficking comes to that area during the 1940s. And really, again, it's American demand that does it because America during the 40s, during the Second World War, is cut off from its supplies of opium. And Mexico is kind of the emergency opium producer and steps into this breach. And yes, it does create these families which do have historical links to the drug trade. I will say, however, again, during the 1940s and even during the 1950s, this is fairly, um, fairly pacific. Again, these groups are mostly linked by family. There's certainly no cartel. They're not trying to control price in any way. They're not terribly organized. Uh, and most of them are just very small familial networks linked by blood and marriage. So what do you think is the biggest factor that goes into increasing violence? I mean, there's there's bunches of you know, guns and things like this. But sometimes, as you said, these fairly pacific you know, relatively stable organizations can ramp up and, and then, you know, heads can be rolling through the streets. Is it is it connected to American demand for drugs? Is it connected to enforcement? Uh, whenever they crack down, does it get worse? I mean, maybe all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I mean, if we're going to be talking, and, and I don't know uh, if you want to be talking about today, because that is a, a really complex set of factors. Oh, we'll, we'll yeah. get there. Yeah, no, yeah so, we'll definitely get there. But it really... Violence really ramps up really noticeably in the 1970s. And I think two things are happening. One, yes, you're absolutely right. Demand, American demand is going through the roof, which basically it's like an oil boom in Mexico. I had no idea quite how extensive marijuana and opium poppy growing was in the 1970s. So during the 1970s, America has not only addicted Viet returning Vietnam vets, it also has kind of hippies going dark and taking heroin. And Mexico is giving is producing 95% of US heroin at the time. And the US has about 650,000 heroin addicts. Um, so this is a fair amount. Plus it's producing about 90% of all the weed in America and 40% of American high schoolers are smoking weed relatively regularly, right? So there's a vast market of drugs. So this spreads, so it's not just the Golden Triangle, a couple of, you know, a hand, frankly, a dozen villages in Northwestern Mexico. Now it's hundreds, maybe even thousands of villages throughout Mexico. So that's absolutely a change. But the second big change, and something that I think I'm, I and many others massively underestimated, was quite how violent the uh, counter-narcotics policies of that era were. Uh, these did not simply involve a couple of buy-and-busts, putting people in jail for two to three years, um, maybe breaking down a few networks. This involved uh, murder, uh, it involved torture, uh, really, really brutal forms of torture to try and find out who you're working through, who your supplier was, who the other people in your network were. 
Now, I think it, this is right at the crux of why there is so much violence, because frankly, if you are a trafficker, um, you'll pretty much do anything to avoid being caught by the police, even shooting the police or shooting other traffickers that you suspect might be informing on you. Uh, so this breaks down those networks of blood and cooperation and marriage that have marked the drug trafficking networks for the last 50 years. So all those, the, as I said, the kind of Pacific drug trade of the last 50 years completely disappears and everyone turns on one another because they're so petrified of being caught by the cops. Now, that is both the Mexican cops, who are horrendously brutal, there's a group called the Policia Judicial Federal, who are particularly unpleasant, but also they are backed to the hilt by members of the DEA. Um, and the DEA is meant strictly, post-73, to report on any, if it ever sees torture, if it suspects torture. And I believe there were only three complaints throughout the 1970s. And none of those were ever acted upon. As this happens, the profits go up, the enforcement goes up. The corruption also seems to go up in the sense of up the scale of the Mexican government. Because we, as you said, you had mayors, municipalities, you know, with Cantu. And then I think it was Loaiza came in and tried to make that into a, a province-based corruption racket. But it seems like the next step, as long as you keep fighting this crazy drug war, is you're going to get to the presidency or at least to the federal level at some point. So at different times, the Mexican presidency itself becomes corrupted by this. Yeah, crime. I think that during the night, I'm not, I mean, I don't think uh, necessarily the presidency does itself. It has, I mean, Mexican presidents have other ways of making money that they don't necessarily have to uh, indulge in something so politically risky. Uh, but I think that it is fairly clear that federal uh, federal cops, Secret Service and the army get involved in attempting to extract money from uh, protecting the drug trade. Uh, and I think what's kind of interesting is during this period, they're kind of fighting between each other for who controls the trade, uh, which actually does cause also quite a lot of the bloodshed. So, I mean, occasionally newspapers let it let it out. I mean, normally newspapers keep pretty stern because they want to keep their lies. But occasionally they let it out that... You know, the federal police have a gun battle in 1978 on the streets of Nuevo Laredo, not with other traffickers, but with the Secret Service, because they're both trying to control the drug trade. So you're absolutely right. It does move up. You know, corruption really changes a level. So these federal, so not state, not local, these federal police forces and Secret Service agencies are effectively now trying to take over the protection of the trade. Now, I think, however, and this is something I've kind of been thinking a lot about, in a way that they're kind of doing the same job as the local, as the local um, mayors and the local governors. Now, the local mayors and local governors, fifty years ago, they wanted to build schools and uh, and build roads. Well, the secret services in the nineteen seventies wanted to kill commies, but again, rather like the local mayors, they didn't have the money to do it. So, what did they do? They basically took money from drugs and they bought their own guns, they bought their uniforms, they bought their helicopters. And if you were a, a fairly good hitman for the cartels, they'd bring you on board and they'd give you a job and a badge. Um, so in actual fact, again, I mean, it's fairly unpalatable to, to say, but this is kind of Mexican state building. It's a, it's a very cheap way to build up your armed forces, right? You don't have to go and tax all the normal people, non-drug traffickers. You can just tax drug traffickers. 
it starts to challenge the very concept of what a state is and which one is being the state. There's something at different times, especially I think in Mishawa Khan, the, the governments essentially lose control of entire regions. Uh, and it's pretty much the cartels that that do the base, even the basics of government. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's exactly right? what's happening now in, in swathes of Mexico is that, is that what, where does the state lie? Is it in the federal national, is it in the national guard? Is it in the lo- local villages which are tooling up in order to fight against the cartels? Is it in some of the cartels which claim to stand for certain political programs? Is it with the political parties which are allied to the cartels? I mean, where where does that state lie? Uh, I think that's a very good question, one that that uh, you know th- this um, that the drug trade has cast into into really kind of bare relief. So you talked about Nuevo Laredo and Isla Juarez. So why, I mean, Americans, especially about 10 years ago, we can get to sort of the modern era. Like we started hearing 15 years ago about Ciudad Juarez, especially just the level of violence got astounding. Why those cities? First of all? Well, so effectively, uh, both cities, both Nuevo Laredo, it starts in Nuevo Laredo in about 2004. I think this is when we first heard about it. I remember, you know, living in Mexico at the time and attempting to get up to, I think up to, uh, UT Austin and being unable to travel through Nuevo Laredo because I was just told don't don't go there it's pitch battles in the street it's far too dangerous to take a bus there and I had taken a bus I think in 2003 um, so you're right it starts in Laredo it goes then moves on to Ciudad Juarez by about 2008 2009 so these are effectively I mean these two these two cities are where the vast majority of drugs go through uh, by the 2000s so effectively, this is where NAFTA has opened up the transport routes between Mexico and the United States. So if you want to traffic weed or coke, which at that point, or meth, which is the kind of three big drugs at that point, heroin's yet to kind of take off again. Uh, then you go through Nuevo Laredo or Ciudad Juarez. So Nuevo, Nuevo Laredo, until I went there, I thought it was a kind of massive Ciudad Juarez, Tijuana city. It's a city of 300,000 people. Not much bigger than the kind of boring provincial city I live in the United Kingdom, right? It's pretty small, but it has a third of all the container traffic going between Mexico and the United States goes through Nuevo Laredo. Now, what happens up to the 2000s or maybe the late 1990s, the federal cops had protected the drug trade, right? They had said, you go through this area, you traffic through this area. During the 1990s, however, two things happened. One, the federal authorities lose power. Mexico democratizes. Uh, For 70 years, Mexico's had one political party in power, something called the PRI. Now, this starts to lose elections, which means it loses power over sways, particularly of northern Mexico. So that's really key. Okay, so it no longer has the power to enforce its agreements on the drug traffickers. The second thing that happens is the drug traffickers get way, way richer. And this is to do with the coke. Uh, industry. Coke is again like a, I don't know, like like a like a second oil boom or something like that. Or I mean, this is uh, effectively America by the nineties is taking seventy percent of the world coke, world's coke, and Mexico is transporting about ninety five percent of that. Mexicans also have distribution networks by the nineteen nineties in U.S. cities, so they're not just making you know, a couple of grand on transporting Colombian Coke over the border, they can make 250 grand from selling that Coke on the US streets. So this is a game changer in terms of the finances of the Mexican cartels. So by the early 2000s, 
it's not the government that's that wants to control who goes where, who traffics where. It's the cartels. And they start to compete for geographical areas of trafficking. So previously, it had been the federal police who were doing this, who were controlling this. Now it's the cartels. And the cartels couldn't be controlled as easily as the federal police. And then we get the broadening of the cartel because different times of the book you kind of even resist the easy label of cartel which sometimes is a kind of dea propaganda to put some sort of uh yeah coherent organization to some of these groups which are actually much more organic and, and so i, th know, I less think organized than they think. i mean i think this is i mean i don't want to go too far down the kind of intellectual route here but there is there is effectively two ways to see what a cartel is the first is the dea way the dea way it's introduced in the 1980s and it describes what was going on in colombia and in Mexico, in the DEA's mind. So they tried to sell to the US public that there were these vast organizations, rather like the OPEC oil cartel, bad capitalists, who were even who were so powerful, they were controlling the market in drugs. Now, frankly, this was, and I, I apologize for the language, bullshit, right? Effectively, these were networks. Uh, they were very similar to what was, they were just slightly extended versions of what was going on in the 60s and 70s. They were large family networks that linked up occasionally to traffic drugs. Um, uh, and occasionally they would link up with other families and traffic drugs. There was no competition between them. There was no attempt to control prices. Uh, the only control really was the federal government, which was telling them, you give us money if you're trafficking through with this area, right? There is a second version of a cartel, which is basically what organized crime groups started to call themselves in the 2000s, right? So for, you get the Gulf Cartel, the Tijuana Cartel, the Sinaloa Cartel. What do they mean by it? Again, they don't really mean price controlling groups. They mean we control this territory, right? That's why they're named after towns, right? The Tijuana Cartel is not some kind of vast Mexico-wide thing. It can't you, you pay them if you go through to Tijuana. The Juarez Cartel, you pay them if you go through to Juarez. The, the Gulf Cartel, you pay them if you go anywhere near the Gulf, right? Um, so effectively, there are these two versions of cartels, but it's kind of got mixed up in people's minds, I think. Um, and I think the DEA is very happy for them to get mixed up. Um, but effectively, one is a territory controlling organized crime group. And I think the other thing to uh, to really uh, stress about that is these organized crime groups, most of them, by the late 90s, drugs is just part of the portfolio. And now the coke is a very, very important part of the portfolio. But by the early 2000s, it's kidnapping, it's oil theft, it's extortion, it's livestock theft. It's Basically, any form of, of, of crime, if you can charge it for it, do it. And that and the Zetas, you you say, are the ones who who are kind of just terrifying in their own way <laughs> because it's uh, it's Mexican special forces, ex Mexican special forces member, at least a good amount of them, and then they just decide to get into, as you said, anything you could charge for, correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they are the ones that expand this. It's kind of been going on at the border a little bit in Tijuana, in Juarez, and a little bit in Nuevo Laredo in the early late 90s, early 2000s. So, for example, in Juarez, I think in the late 90s, they start to fire a bunch of car thieves. I mean, just they start to appear dead all over Ciudad Juarez because basically they weren't paying the Juarez cartel the right protection money. So, yes, undoubtedly there are signs of this happening, but it's the Zetas who expand this, not outside the border cities, into 
basically rural areas of Mexico that cannot see this coming. There's this terrifying um, recent book by a guy called Sergio Aguayo, who's a brilliant researcher in Mexico. And he did this excellent book on what happened in Torreon. Now, Torreon is a doubt you've heard of it. It's a pretty boring provincial city. It is basically a kind of agricultural market town, has a few factories. But the Zetas just arrived there in 2009 and they do two things. One, they kidnap the head of the police um, and they take a video of him being brutally tortured and they ask him, "Who? Tell, give us a list of all the criminals in Torreon. So he gives them a list. Then they approach those criminals and they say, right, you're working for us now. Half your profits go to us. The second thing they do is they send a letter, which I do publish in my in my book. They send a letter to a couple of lawyers who work on behalf of the big, you know, merchants, factory owners, the kind of elites of Torreon. These aren't big time players. These aren't Mexico City billionaires, right? They're, you know, they're rich, but they ain't that rich. And they basically wrote this letter to the, to the to the lawyer going, right, you get all the, the people you work for and they're going to start paying us a tax. They can pay the government a tax. We don't really care about that, but they're going to pay us a certain percentage of their profits. So, yeah, the Zetas bring this kind of protection racket, Sicilian mafia mentality to the rest of Mexico. And it is it's kind of what Mexico is still living with today because everyone starts to copy of them. It, 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 it creates this kind of race to the bottom where every other cartel kind of has to get involved in involved in this or the zetas are going to outgun you and outmoney you uh, that's the sort of dispiriting conclusion as someone who's fought against the drug war for for quite a while um you want you would want to say well if america just legalized let's say i mean let's say we just went all out so you could buy heroin you know on over the over the counter uh well that would completely deflate you know our our legalization of marijuana i'm from colorado i mean that has already defl deflated some part of that trade so let's just take away all their power because on one level our our prohibition our extreme demand for drugs we are the biggest drug taking country on the planet by far has destabilized mexico for a century so that's the as we've talked about that is the proximate factor but if so if we if we just stopped would we make a dent now in these these organizations that have gone so much further into the criminal sphere? I think the vast majority of the violence, and sadly, sadly, the current president has effectively stopped certain of the more um, uh, damaging policies of the war on drugs. So, for example, he's basically pushed to one side the kingpin strategy. No longer are there people put on the front page of newspapers saying, we've caught the head of the Gulf Cartel. It's all over. It's Everything's fine, guys. None of that, right? But the violence has just increased and the murders are still increasing. So I think a lot of the, frankly, a lot of the murders that go on Mexico have very little to do with drugs. The people who are really involved in making billions from the drug trade, they're not really bothering to murder people. Um, so people like El Mayo, who is the guy who's basically taken over from El Chapo, doesn't need to murder people. Sinaloa is a relatively, or it, it was, it wasn't until very recently, a relatively safe state, right? It's not competed over by by any drug cartels the vast majority of these murders are originating not from the international trafficking of drugs but from the extension of the protection rackets over all sorts of different forms of crime so i deal a lot with with refugees escaping from various forms of violence in mexico and what always surprised me is how few of them are actually escaping anything to do with uh, with narcotics uh, the vast majority are escaping because they own a, a taco stand that's being shaken down by some group that's connected to the Caballeros Templarios or something like that. These are small scale groups who are effectively 
operating as almost parallel states in bits of the country. I should say not all of the country, but at least in bits of the country. So is there anything we can do? I, I mean, I mean, I mean, Mexico, it's, it's a, I know, you know, there's Italy has talked at, at different times. The, the mafia has been so prevalent in Italy that it, it created problems for governing structures in different parts of Italy. I'm not sure it ever got to the level of Mexico today. It's a pretty, it's a pretty difficult problem when you think about it, unless you bring in a bigger guns to outgun the already heavily armed cartels who are just who almost have the army of a state. It's something. I mean, it's something that the current president has really struggled with. I mean, I think there has there has been an attempt to over overhaul the judicial system. One of that's been an enormous problem. Uh, so Mexico runs at still about ninety nine percent impunity rate for violent crimes. That cannot go on. So there have been certain. Judicial changes, they've worked in certain states, like Chihuahua has brought down its impunity rate from kind of 99% down to about 60%. That's quite an impressive kind of um, uh, shift. So that's worked. The current president has really stressed offering social and economic opportunities to basically men between 16 and 24 who do, who are the vast majority who are killed and the vast majority uh, of the killers. Um now, that has been massively hamstrung by the fact that the Mexican economy was not doing very well before COVID and is doing even worse after and during COVID. Uh, so that's been highly problematic. I do think by removing the kingpin strategy, what we don't have are the big set piece battles between small groups, uh, basically people at the top end of the cartels for who controls those cartels. I think that has has stopped and that is a good thing. But what we do have is just, as I say, endless churns of violence and destabilization, particularly in certain rural areas of Mexico. The final thing I should say, and I'm sorry for kind of going on about this question, but it's one that always come back to, is Mexico now has a drug market. It never had a drug market before. One thing that the federal government were very, very good at doing, and I think this, it's something you get hints at talking to police officers. It's something you get hints at talking to DEA officials. But I think it's fairly understood that Mexican, the fe Mexican federal authorities not only took money from the drug cartels, they were very sure those drug cartels didn't sell in Mexico. Uh, since the 2000s, those agreements have basically disappeared. Um, uh, we still don't have a really clear pattern over how many drug addicts Mexico has, but certainly big border cities like Tijuana and Juarez have vast addict populations. So a lot of the bloodshed that's happening in Tijuana and Juarez, and I think Tijuana now is the most dangerous city on earth in terms of homicides, that's fighting over corners, right? That, that That's Baltimore circa 1990, right? This is about, because if trafficking drugs is relatively pacific, dealing and selling in drugs, now that's violent, right? Because you've got a very, you've basically got a small group of small limited group of addicts and you want to dominate that particular market whether it's on this block or this block or this block so people are people when they're selling drugs they do fight for territory a lot and very violently so it's it's 18 year old kids gunning down other 18 year old kids over selling meth Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, 
visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.